The History Channel original podcast. He won the largest popular majority in American history till then. He is absolutely elated because he can now say, I have won the mandate of the people. He just blurts it out. He's not going to seek re-election in 1908. People can't believe he said it. It was an impulsive gesture on the night that he won the election. He made a mistake, perhaps the biggest of his career. Boy, did he come to regret it. Teddy Roosevelt has just been elected president. He'll continue in the office he's held since William McKinley's assassination. Emboldened by his mandate, Roosevelt vows to continue his efforts to protect workers. And he shifts his focus to an industry much less on the minds of everyday Americans. T.R. reads voraciously and, says Edward T. O'Donnell, this pressing issue comes to his attention in a new book, a novel by a so-called muckraking journalist named Upton Sinclair. There's a big expose in the early 20th century. The book is called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, an investigative journalist, and exposes the horrors of the meat industry, the exploitation of workers, but also the horrible product, the dangerous, poisonous product that meat packers are selling to the public. And untold thousands of Americans are dying of diseases brought about by this poisonous meat. The Jungle is a work of fiction. But Sinclair had done first-hand research inside the meatpacking plants. Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin says T.R. calls Sinclair to his office as soon as he finishes the book. Sinclair describes in the book how they take scraps of diseased meat, meat that's been on the floor, that's been eaten by rats, and put it into the vat. But he doesn't know whether or not Sinclair may have been exaggerating the facts. Roosevelt decides to launch his own investigation. He sends men undercover into the factories. The investigators go out to the plants and he finds out the conditions are even worse than what Sinclair had posited. Roosevelt then has a bill before the Congress to force the meatpacking plants to clean up their act and to label their food. And they, of course, respond obstinately. Once again, Roosevelt gets the public on his side by showing them the facts. He publishes a small part of this report, and finally, that's enough. And he gets this meatpacking bill. The Food and Drug Act, which leads to the founding of the Food and Drug Administration, is born. H.W. Brands is professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. He believed that the only agency that could stand up for the interest, for the safety, for the health of the American people was the national government. And for the first time, the government begins to inspect what comes out of these food processing plants. What's really happening here is that Roosevelt is creating a new relationship between government and the people. He, as president, is steward of the people. He represents the public interest. But how does Roosevelt define the, quote, public? Does he view all Americans equally? Roosevelt's legacy is mixed. Here's historian Khalil Gibran Mohammed of the Harvard Kennedy School. Roosevelt has a real problem on his hands because the only way that he can be the president of the little person and protecting a square deal on the basis of class and economic inequality was to somehow figure out how to deal with racism. 
Many historians see Roosevelt as not only deeply conflicted about how to make sense of Black people's role in American society, but profoundly contradictory in his commitment to fairness and justice for them. On the one hand, he does symbolic things like invite Booker T. Washington to dine in the White House. He appoints a lot of African-Americans to low-level positions throughout the federal government, which were actually very significant relative to his predecessors. On the other hand, there are other things that offset that. One of these is the Brownsville Incident, or Affair. This moment in 1906 proves to many that Roosevelt's gestures towards black Americans, like inviting Booker T. Washington to the White House, may be hollow. Here's historian Clay Jenkinson. The 25th Infantry of Black Soldiers was stationed in Brownsville, Texas. This was a source of enormous racial tension in the community. There was kind of a riot, and uh, one white person was wounded, another one killed. Leroy G. Dorsey is professor of communication at Texas A&M University. There was a report that those black soldiers may have shot up the town. But the evidence that was gathered showed that that's probably not what happened. The black soldiers say, we did not do it. We were in our barracks. We were where we should be. This is a segregated military, so they're under white officers. The white officers said, yes, all of our black soldiers were in their beds, in their barracks, when that shooting took place. They were not responsible for it. And Roosevelt doesn't believe them. And so after a short period of time, Roosevelt summarily discharges all 167 of these black soldiers. Historian Stacy A. Cordery says, once TR makes this decision, he is not open to new information. Roosevelt started his investigation by believing that the soldiers were guilty. He ended his investigation by believing that the soldiers were guilty. He did not take into account the fact-finding mission. It was a case of Theodore Roosevelt having a very closed mind about this. Booker T. Washington, once Roosevelt's guest at the White House, is angered by T.R.'s decision and tries to lobby on behalf of the soldiers. Roosevelt is criticized by the NAACP and the prominent civil rights figures like W.E.B. Du Bois. Black leaders urge their constituents to remember the Brownsville affair when voting in future elections. Kathleen Dawson is author of Theodore Roosevelt, a strenuous life. It shows that the system of justice isn't going to work for blacks. And so a lot of black leaders said, enough with you. I'd rather give up being a Republican. He wants equity, but he also understands somebody has to be on top, and that's whites. For African-Americans, he defended some of their rights, but he didn't do anything to expand them. Susan Burfield author of The Hour of Fate. He talked about making the country a good place for everybody, but his notion of who everybody is was obviously very limited. At the same time, all kinds of other things are percolating. Middle-class voters in particular want reform, and they want government to do things for them. Toward the end of his second term, he's thinking about the future. So he's got a sense of urgency to get things done before he leaves the presidency. Roosevelt decides that his top priority must be preserving the country's natural resources and beauty. Douglas Brinkley is professor of history at Rice University. 
He is the only politician of that era that saw the world as one pulsing biological organism. And he was able now to see, wow, this is the big issue of our time. Roosevelt was able to explain to people that if you allow unregulated strip mining or you allow loggers to just dynamite trees so they can get to better trees in the interior, if you allow that, you are risking the future of America. Congress is filled with people that have no problem with private interests and big business carving up forests and strip mining mountains and so forth. And so he begins to look around and, and ask his advisors, what power do I have? What authority do I have uh, to save the wilderness? And Roosevelt lands on an unusual strategy to advance his cause. Here is his great-grandson, Tweed Roosevelt. T.R. realized he had executive power to do all kinds of things, that he didn't need congressional approval. And he was one of the first presidents to use the executive power in imaginative ways. He used his executive power to save more than 230 million acres of American land in different forms. It is such a wonderful idea to want to save these natural spaces. And Teddy Roosevelt, I think, did more than any other president to make that happen. Like author Megan Kate Nelson says, today, T.R. is remembered as the conservation president. During his time in office, he establishes 150 national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments, including the Grand Canyon. But the great irony of that is that in order to do that, Roosevelt and other presidents took that land away from indigenous peoples, its rightful owners, who had been responsible stewards of the land for thousands of years. In Roosevelt's time, most Americans view these areas as wilderness in need of preservation, ignoring the people who have lived there for generations. To create these new national parks, 230 million acres of land are appropriated from Native American tribes, displacing the Blackfeet, Crow, Sioux, Cheyenne, and others who were forced to relocate. As his time in office draws to a close, Roosevelt is filled with regret over his self-inflicted wound when he publicly vowed that he would not seek re-election. Now, he very much wants to stay. He says, If I had conscientiously felt at liberty to run again and try once more to hold this great office, I should greatly have liked to do so and to continue to keep my hands on the levers of this mighty machine. When Roosevelt leaves office in 1909, he's riding high, and wherever he goes, he draws a crowd. But this is another one of these moments of despair. Like when his father died, when his, his wife and mother died, he's kind of crushed by this new reality. He's only 50 years old. What is he going to do with the rest of his life? He's closed off the opportunity to run for another term. Four years earlier, Roosevelt had publicly stated his own choice of successor. William Howard Taft, then T.R.'s Secretary of War. Historian Edward Kahn. 
Roosevelt absolutely loves Taft. He thinks Taft is a wonderful person. They have a very close relationship. But that close relationship would not last. TR handed Taft this nomination in 1908, thinking, oh, this is mini-me. I'm going to set him up for continuing my policy. Well, that was a mistake, a big mistake. TR has no idea what his own future will hold. He tells one journalist, the best thing I can do is to go entirely away, out of reach of everything here. Once again, when there's a feeling of loss, in this case, the loss of the presidency that he had loved, he has to do something with great forward motion that will engulf him and take up every hour of every day so he won't think about the loss that he sustained. So he travels to these unexplored regions in Africa. His trip to Africa was so celebrated around the world. Everybody was following him. Magazines were seeing everything that he did, photographs coming out. It was a big deal. He got to then go to Europe and give big speeches and get honorary degrees. And it was a way of making himself a global president. Roosevelt comes back in June of 1910, and it's like when the astronauts came back. There were ticker tape parades. There was more confetti than had ever been seen before. Whole sets of battleships were in the harbor. They're hanging teddy bears on the windows, and there's banners, and they're all there waiting for him to be home. It's really hard for him to damp down that desire that I should never have left public life. It's what I'm meant for. It's what I was born for. It's what I want to be. Roosevelt has lost none of his popularity, none of his personal drive, and yet all of his power. He's compelled to watch his successor from the sidelines. Roosevelt had expected Taft to carry on his legacy, but it's clear that is not Taft's agenda. Part of this was Roosevelt fooling himself and thinking that he was more persuasive than he actually was. Part of it was Taft being cannily silent and letting Roosevelt project on him Roosevelt's own ideas. A strong case can be made that Taft had not done what Taft had promised that he would do. Roosevelt truly believed that Taft had disappointed progressives and further had disappointed the American people as a president. Taft invites him to spend the weekend in the White House and Teddy rejects that invitation. It's really hurtful to Taft and the beginning of Taft realizing that something's happening between the two men. And then more and more progressives go to Teddy. They go out to Sagamore Hill to tell him, you've got to get into this fight. We need you in this fight because we're losing this fight. T.R. complains in a letter to Henry Cabot Lodge. You do not need to be told that Taft was nominated solely in my assurance, to the Western people especially but almost as much to the people of the East, that he would carry out my work unbroken, not, as he has done, merely working for the same objects in a totally different spirit. And so, Roosevelt decides he needs to, once again, speak directly to the people. So he gives the speaking tour in 1910 during an off-year election. He goes all over the country, and one of the speeches he gave was at Osawatomie, Kansas. And the crowd is so gigantic that they bring out a wooden table, and T.R. steps up onto the table and gives this new nationalism speech, which is widely regarded as the most radical speech by a major player in American history. He's actually becoming, to a certain extent, a radical progressive at this point. He's really moving what we would call to the left. The eight-hour workday, workman's compensation, old age insurance, health insurance or health access for all, child labor laws. 
in some ways, suffrage for women. But he had developed this really strong package of reforms that pushed beyond anything that he had done before. The nation is moving forward in a more progressive direction. TR is leading that charge and keeping up with that charge. Taft is not. So the nation is more with TR in terms of its feelings than it is with Taft at this moment in time. TR is thinking, what do I do with myself? The Osawatomie speech, the new nationalism, is really a call to political change. It's saying, we need reform, we need to look forward and have a new sense of national purpose. Taft's not dealing with the big issues at all. So people knew what to read in that speech. It was maybe he's feeling his oats again and maybe TR's back. So as Roosevelt is touring the country, drumming up support in 1910, he is constantly thinking about why did he cut himself off from the presidency and could he find his way back? Roosevelt feels betrayed and slowly but surely he begins to develop the idea that he can run for president in 1912 and that he must run for president in 1912. Reporter Ray Baker, who has covered TR throughout his presidency and knows him well, writes around this time, quote, one thing may be set down as absolutely certain. Roosevelt will act. Roosevelt always acts. And when he acts, no stage smaller than that of the nation will serve him. He is of continental size. TR was like a warhorse smelling battle. Once you get that thunderous realization from the crowd and you know that you're driving the progressive movement forward, he feels like he has to run for this time, even if it's running against his old friend Taft, even if it might split the Republican Party in two. He has this hope that there was a progressive majority in the people as a whole. So finally, in the early spring of 1912, he announces uh, by using, for the first time in American history, the phrase, my hat is in the ring. Teddy Roosevelt is fighting an uphill battle. Without the backing of the Republican political machine, he has to work hard to secure the party's nomination for the presidency. Theodore Roosevelt got started late. He didn't have as much money. He did not control the Republican um, apparatus. So while he had fame and the love of Americans on his side, he didn't have the political operation that he needed to have in place. There were contested primaries. It was bitter. They got into baseball bat fights in some of the states. Roosevelt and Taft had once been close friends. Now they are political rivals. As the convention nears, the fight becomes more personal. Roosevelt calls Taft a fathead, a puzzle wit, a traitor. Taft then replies that if Roosevelt wants this third term, why not want a fourth term? Why not a fifth term? He'll stay in for the rest of his life. The argument becomes so heated that the New York Times writes an editorial. They say, if this is not a rational argument between the two sides. This is a mob. So the Republican National Convention convenes in Chicago in June of 1912. Up to that point, Roosevelt has uh, competed for the nomination in all the states that have primary. And Roosevelt does extremely well. He runs away with it, including in William Howard Taft's Ohio. And so he fully expects that he is deserving of and going to get uh, the nomination. Probably, if there had been real 
democracy in the Republican Party, he would have won the nomination because he was still just wildly loved across the nation. But the way the apparatus was set up, even though he won most of the primaries, he did not get the nomination. And Roosevelt felt that decisions were made by the chairman of the Republican Party that were deliberately undercutting his chances, and in a fair fight, he would have gotten the nomination. The Republican Party chooses Taft, and neither Roosevelt nor his supporters are happy with that outcome. His supporters storm out of the convention, chanting, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not steal. It's a very dramatic moment. And that night, they meet in a hotel and draw up the blueprint for a new party, the Progressive Party. He bolted and helped to form the Progressive Party, which almost immediately became known as the Bull Moose Party because, of course, they asked him if he were up to it, and he said that he felt as strong as a bull moose. The Progressive Party was not like anything else that existed. It's mostly middle-class people from around the country, idealists and, and feminists who had nowhere else to turn. And all these people gather in Chicago a second time at the Bull Moose Party convention. The Bull Moose Party Convention brings together a number of diverse groups, including one segment of the population that didn't even have the right to vote. There are more women there than ever before at a convention. It's called the Petticoat Convention. Jane Addams is there, women's suffragettes are there, because women's suffrage is one of the planks of the new party. This was a group of people who had been dreaming all of their lives of a gentler, juster, more equalitarian, more progressive nation. People who wanted reform in every possible way in life, in our factories, in the way that healthcare was delivered, and child labor, and you name it. At the convention, Roosevelt is greeted by an outpouring of enthusiasm. But it's not long before the cracks start to show. A controversy emerged when, in the South, whites came together in a segregationist delegation, which excluded black people. He was a very pragmatic politician. He needed to pull progressive voters from among the Southern Democrats, and racist white Southern Democrats at that time would not have come along had he seated the black delegates. Roosevelt's unwillingness to take a stand disappoints many of his supporters who had expected him to live up to his square deal reputation. It was a betrayal from the perspective of black leaders, North and South, the black community couldn't trust uh, the Republican Party any longer, and particularly couldn't trust Roosevelt. Meanwhile, in the Democratic race, Woodrow Wilson, who had been governor of New Jersey, as well as president of Princeton University, came into the election of 1912 and quickly became the popular frontrunner. Wilson is a tough opponent given TR's platform. Jared Cohen is author of Accidental Presidents. Wilson is probably the worst hand that TR could be dealt because Wilson's running as an even more extreme progressive. Wilson was eloquent and idealistic. His dad was a Presbyterian minister, so he could preach to people about, you know, the, the best in human character rising up to the government. He was really quite a good campaigner, but TR's scrappier and he was a fighter. It's like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and it's much earthier. Taft doesn't give very many speeches. Clearly, the battle in 1912 is now between Teddy and Wilson. And Teddy has always been the most in his element on the campaign trail. 
PR campaigns harder in 1912 than probably all of his campaigns combined. He couldn't help it. He had an insatiable appetite to put on a performance. And you see him doing this in the most trying times. He just had an incredible sense of the moment and how to make something of the moment. He does his whistle-stop tours. He lumbast Taft. He's the best version of himself and drew wild, crazy, adoring crowds all over the country. At the end of this very exhausting campaign, they get to Milwaukee where he's gonna give this major speech that night. He's tired, his voice is given out. Before his speech, Roosevelt dines at the Gilpatrick Hotel. He then leaves the hotel and enters an open car, which is to take him to the Milwaukee Auditorium. John Fleming Schrank, a former saloon keeper from New Orleans, follows him into the street. John Schrank had been stalking Teddy for several months, following Roosevelt around the country. John Schrank had a dream when McKinley died that Roosevelt was responsible and McKinley had appeared to him in his bed saying, you must avenge my murder. When Roosevelt stands up in the back of the car to acknowledge the crowd of admirers, Schrank seizes his chance. He aims his 32 caliber pistol directly at Roosevelt's heart and fires. The former president is wounded, but because he's not coughing up blood, Tiara believes he's avoided anything fatal. He orders the police to arrest Schrank, but not to harm him, and he decides to go ahead with his speech. Bleeding from a chest wound, he gives an 84-minute speech. His life was saved by his steel spectacles case and his 50-page speech, which was folded up, and the bullet went through the speech. Some pieces of it still exist. And then Roosevelt was giving those away as souvenirs to people in the front rows because they would always be sacred relics of the day that Roosevelt was shot. It's impossible to imagine this happening to anyone else in American history. One Democratic supporter said, the bullet that lodges in Roosevelt's chest may have won the election for Roosevelt. The dramatic incident and his response to it had recreated that sense of magic that Roosevelt had. The Republican Party is frustrated with the situation they have allowed to evolve. They know their chances for re-election have just decreased dramatically. When T.R. bolted from the convention and started the Progressive Party, Republicans, of course, were horrified and they saw what was happening. They knew they were split. They knew they were probably going to lose the White House. Their only hope was to somehow stop it. But TR was such a volcano of energy, and there was little chance they could do it. One senator put it very concisely. He said, now the only question is which corpse, Taft or Roosevelt, gets the most flowers. And in the end, Wilson wins by a landslide. Taft came in third. Roosevelt came in second. He got the largest third-party vote in American history. In the election of 1912, we have the first and perhaps the last of the great presidential races for independent third-party politics in American history. But the presidency wasn't the only thing at stake. Democrats take both the House and the Senate, so it's a devastating blow to the Republican Party, and they are not going to forgive Roosevelt. And that hurts. He wasn't a man who typically lost at things. He thinks this might be it for him. So he gets very depressed. And what does TR do when he gets depressed? He retreats to 
some version of the wilderness, testing his body, testing his mind, and doing something really brash. As he had done so many times before, T.R. seeks solace in nature and in adventure. This time, he decides to head to Brazil. He decided he would do some kind of river trip in the Amazon. And his first idea was to uh, travel down a river called the Tapajos, which was a fairly well-traveled river. But when he got to Brazil, the Brazilian foreign minister asked him if he would like to go on an expedition with a fellow named Colonel Rondon, the Brazilian Lewis and Clark. There is a tributary in the Amazon nicknamed the River of Doubt that had recently been discovered and he decides that he's gonna navigate it. But Roosevelt is no longer the young man who reinvented himself as a cowboy in the West, or the cavalry officer who rode up San Juan Hill. Edith said to Kermit, go on this journey, watch over your father, he needs your help now. Edith understood that TR was overweight, out of shape, and that he hadn't prepared for this journey. You have to be spiritually ready for something like this, and he wasn't. TR's trips to the wilderness, whether it's the Badlands, whether it's just a hunting trip in New England, an African safari, there's always something about it that is about reinvention and rediscovery. He has to almost kill himself in order to reimagine himself. This trip quickly descends into danger. 100% humidity, starving, worried all the time that they would be attacked. They knew they were being watched. The indigenous people would leave out little messages like a severed monkey's head in a path around a rapids. Just as Edith fears, Teddy is clearly not up to the challenge of the journey. He and Kermit both contract malaria. There's these massive waterfalls, and they have to carry the canoes down, and one of the canoes is stuck. This enormous current is, is forcing it into the rocks. TR's leg was crushed against a rock, and this became septic. He became delirious. As the wound grows worse, he becomes more and more of a liability to the traveling party. The problem is if you're Theodore Roosevelt, nobody's going to leave you behind. The River of Doubt, it was discovered and went 850 miles through very, very wild country with some extraordinarily difficult and dangerous rapids. But eventually it flattened out. When they got close to the bottom, Rondon called everybody together for a little ceremony where he officially renamed the river from the Duvida to the Rio Roosevelt, which is what it is today. It's the exact opposite of the Badlands trip. When he goes to the Badlands, he bulks up, he toughens up, he builds more resilience. By the time he comes back from the Amazon, I mean, he's a really sickly looking man. He was 55 pounds lighter and suffering a great deal from the infection of his leg. His medical record was an extraordinary series of accidents and problems. TR once said that he wanted to wear out, not rust out. And when he returns from the Amazon, the world has changed completely. Here's military historian Colonel Doug Dowds. In June of 1914, Archduke Ferdinand, heir to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, is assassinated by a Serbian nationalist in Montenegro. This will light a crisis that becomes World War I. By the winter of 1914-1915, there are already a million Frenchmen dead. 
There are already a million Germans dead, and there's already 18 nations involved. This is not some small affair, and Theodore Roosevelt is able to see that ultimately the United States cannot stay out. President Woodrow Wilson does not agree. When the Great War started, Woodrow Wilson said that it was a European issue, the United States should stay out of it. Woodrow Wilson in many ways embodies everything Roosevelt hates. Wilson, in his eyes, is effete and uh, equivocating and doesn't have that sort of sense of moral righteousness and, and that warrior mentality. So he's railing against Wilson and saying, we need, at the very least, to prepare. We need to be drafting people, building up our military. So Roosevelt, again, is sort of outside of power, but using his influence to try to push the nation towards a firmer footing when it comes to uh, being ready for the war. At the start of World War One, German submarines were roaming the Atlantic and picking off British ships. They warned this British liner, the Lusitania, we know that you're transporting guns to the war and we might sink you. And they put ads in the New York papers and said, uh, don't travel on the Lusitania. But Americans rode the Lusitania anyway and the Germans sank it. So TR said it was murder on the high seas. Are you gonna stand up for us, Woodrow Wilson? Well, probably not. Roosevelt sees the sinking of the Lusitania as a direct act of war against the United States. Of the nearly 1,200 people who go down with the ship, 123 are Americans. After the outcry over the sinking of the Lusitania, Wilson got an agreement from the Germans that they would suspend unrestricted submarine warfare. But by 1917, Germans aren't doing well. So they have to roll the dice, starting unrestricted submarine warfare again. Wilson had said that would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And now he will ask for a declaration of war. TR had believed all his life that if you took a position, you had to stand up to it. If the position was that you should go to war, you should be willing to fight in it if you possibly could. When the First World War came around, of course, he tried to get in. He asked Wilson to allow him to create another cavalry and go over to Europe. Despite his age and his health, Teddy Roosevelt wants to go to Europe to fight on the battlefield. Roosevelt is in his 50s by this time, he is blind in one eye. He's got gout. He's got rheumatism. He's had, a, he's had a bullet in him. He's basically a physical wreck. And the last time he was on a battlefield, the cavalry was still horses, not tanks. Still, T.R. complains. If Mr. Wilson had been able to rise above the cheapest kind of party politics, I would be over myself. But Roosevelt still always kept that kind of romantic idea about warfare. Again, the father not serving in the Civil War, while for the rest of Roosevelt's life, the American soldiers who did serve in the Civil War were ubiquitous. And so this is why Roosevelt absolutely had to enter the war in Cuba. It's also why he pushed his sons to enter the First World War. And certainly the four Roosevelt boys know exactly what they have to do. And one of them even says, it's time for us to practice what father preaches. So father is not going to be able to put on a uniform. He's been denied that opportunity, but we can. And so all four of them uh, head off to war. Teddy Roosevelt Jr. will be gassed. He'll be shot in the foot. He'll never have feeling in his left heel again. 
Archie will be wounded, his kneecaps will be shattered, 100% disability. Kermit is actually gonna get sent over to Mesopotamia, and that's where he is gonna contribute. And his youngest son, Quentin, he wants to be a pilot. He's got bad eyesight, so he memorizes the eye chart, he's got back problems, he lies about that and becomes an aviator. Quentin was the youngest and the favorite, little Quinticans, TR called him, and he fought dogfights in France. And TR was thrilled when he got accounts of how he had gone into a dogfight and shot down a German plane and had survived attack by other German planes. But Quentin will not survive the war. He dies in aerial combat over France on July 14, 1918. When the Germans came across Quentin and they saw that it was the son of Theodore Roosevelt, they held a full military funeral with honor. Roosevelt never truly recovers from Quentin's death. People around him remark on how subdued the former president becomes, and his health declines rapidly. But he turns his remaining energy to supporting the well-being of the soldiers who do return from the war. When the war was coming to an end, there was this desire on the part of the people to make sure that the soldiers and the country that they came back to was a better place. TR was exactly the right spokesman. He's talking about giving land and jobs to returning soldiers. He wants old age pensions. He's talking about women's suffrage and women's rights, social welfare programs, national service. So much of what would be in FDR's presidency, he is outlining right here, right now for the country. He campaigns for citizens' rights, and then he campaigns for himself. Roosevelt never gives up on the dream of reacquiring his position in the White House. Despite incredible sacrifice and tragedy and physical ill health, he is laying the groundwork for the nomination in 1920. He was so active in that period after the war that he became once again the most popular man in America. And I think that public sentiment toward him made him realize that the kaleidoscope had shifted. And yes, indeed, he possibly could run again and had a really good shot this time. Even though he was in miserable shape, he still charged on in typical TR fashion. He was correcting proofs to his latest book. He was concerned about various policy issues. He was preparing for speeches he was going to give. Roosevelt's health declines throughout 1918 as a result of the disease he had contracted in South America. At one point, he is hospitalized for seven weeks. Eventually, he is strong enough to return to his Long Island home, Sagamore Hill. Roosevelt dies there in his sleep at the age of 60 after a blood clot travels to his lungs. He died on January 6th, 1919, just 60 years old, of an embolism. Roosevelt dies still looking to act, still reaching toward the future. Somebody quipped, death had to come to TR when he was asleep, otherwise he would have put up a fight. He created himself as an endearing and irrepressible character every step along the way. And for people all over the country, they had lived with him through all of his adventures. They had gone with him along every step, and now he was suddenly gone. There was tremendous outpouring of sorrow. He was somehow impervious to the things that harmed you and I. And, and even the family had a hard time understanding that, that TR was gone. 
Roosevelt's son, Archer, sent a telegram to his brothers who were still in Europe. And he said, the old lion is dead. There are two types of presidents. There are caretaker presidents, which is almost all of them. And then there are presidents who define America and help to move America in a new direction. And Roosevelt is certainly one of those. Roosevelt said, there's this one great ideal that we revere, individualism. But he says, you know, there's another virtue that we always forget about, and that's the common good. We're all in this together. Roosevelt used the bully pulpit to steward the soul of the country and to tell people to follow their better selves. Fairness, justice, equity is what drove him. The core values that Roosevelt expressed most of his life really went back to his father and to Abraham Lincoln. Essentially, it's the idea that every man should have a chance to rise to the level of their talent and discipline. He said he wanted the farmer's son and the mechanic's son to have the same chance as a son of privilege. His ability to connect with almost anyone he meets, his willingness to hear their stories and see the world through their eyes, allows him to imagine and pursue a more just society. The greatest thing that Theodore Roosevelt did was to understand the imbalance of power between the common people and the elites. I think that involved Roosevelt having to step outside of his own upbringing to look with sympathy or empathy on those who had so little. That, to me, that's heroic. I think if we could point to a president whose coming-of-age story in the late 19th century represents someone who could literally grab the reins of power and shake up the rest of the world, he was America as a singular figure. T.R. loved being president. There wasn't anybody who had more exuberance, more fun. He was more than a president. He was the most interesting man in America. There's not another figure in American history like Roosevelt that he almost did nothing in the whole course of his life that wasn't somehow the basis of great stories, great adventures, great revelations of his integrity and his outsized heroic personality. There's nobody else like him. Making Teddy is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Eli Lara, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. Ben Dickstein, the senior producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode. The television series, Theodore Roosevelt, was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.